0: Well, good morning, everybody. Very lovely to see you. It's such a joy to speak when the Lord has already said everything uh, that you're about to say, and rather more. (laughs) So um, what you're about to hear is just a postscript to what he's already been talking to us about. Um, I wonder how many of us here were not actually born or bred in this country, and who of us have ever lived somewhere where we were a foreigner? Yeah, that's really interesting. Really interesting. Thank you. Um and maybe lots of us know people who are living here who's not or hasn't always been British, uh who's a stranger, foreigner, uh where we've felt out of place. Well in that case you will direct, you will relate directly to Ruth. Were you here last week? Uh, quite a lot of you were, were um, uh, embarking on a little series um, of talks on the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. Thanks, Johnny and Beth, for a great introduction to uh, Ruth last, last uh, week. It was fantastic. Uh, a book written more than 3,000 years ago, still very relevant for us today. I thought I thought we'd do is to start with a story so far, and then we'll uh, read a, a chapter two, and we'll go on from there. So the story is so her father was a believing Israeli family living in, in Bethlehem. And um, there was a guy called Elimelech. If we can just go back to that, that's the one. The guy called Elimelech had a wife, Naomi, and two sons. The problem was that it was a difficult time because there was not enough food because the harvests had failed. So um, Elimelech took his wife, Naomi, uh, over to... Which side are we? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Over to Moab, the other side of the Red Sea, uh, Dead Sea, I mean, uh, and um, uh, to uh, to get some food and to have somewhere decent to live. You'll notice that it wasn't the EU that invented freedom of movement. (laughs) At one point, there were six of them. Mum and dad and their two sons and their two Moabite wives, no kids yet. Then, sadly, in those days of minimal health care, the dad died in Moab. More than that, not long afterwards, their two sons did as well. So those were the days of no antibiotics. So out of the six of them, the three men died, and Naomi had lost all her menfolk. She felt so sorry for herself that actually she wanted to change her name from Naomi, which means pleasant, to Mara, meaning bitter. Bitter. She was what Hillary and I would call baptized in lemon juice. And although she still believed in God just, she, recognized, she reckoned that he'd done her no favors. There she was, she and her two Moabite daughters-in-law who had no husbands. Three women, but between them they had no earning power, no social security, they had hit rock bottom. So Naomi took a decision that she would leave Moab and go back to Bethlehem, where they'd come from over 10 years beforehand. At the same time, she'd leave her two daughters-in-law who'd just lost their husbands to make themselves new lives in Moab among their families, where they'd been brought up. Only one snag. While one of the girls was cool with that, the other one, called Ruth, was absolutely determined to stick with her mum-in-law. No, she said to Naomi, wherever you go, I go. I'm coming with you. And she meant it. And she was determined to leave her country, Moab, and its gods, and go with her mum-in-law to back to Israel, to Bethlehem. I remember once seeing a letter in the papers uh, from a couple who'd been married a little while, and I rather liked it. They just simply said, we decided some years ago that if either of us wanted to leave, the other one would be coming too. Isn't that nice? Great expression of Commitment. So here in Ruth, when we come to chapter 2, we find the two of them, Naomi and the mum, Ruth, the daughter-in-law, are having recently rocked up in Bethlehem, um, Naomi's old home. And it happens to be harvest time. And Claire is going to come and read it to us very kindly. So if you've got a, a Bible, pad, phone, whatever you need, Ruth, you'll find it in the Old Testament earlier than you think you will, um, around Judges somewhere, and it's chapter 2. Thank you, Claire.
1: So this is chapter 2, reading up to verse 20. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. Boaz asked the foreman of his harvesters, whose young woman is that? The foreman replied, she's the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She went into the field and worked steadily from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, "'My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. "'Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow after the girls. "'I've told the men not to touch you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled.' At this, she bowed down her face to the ground. She exclaimed, "'Why have I found such favor in your eyes "'that you notice me, a foreigner?' Boaz replied, "'I've been told all about what you have done "'for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, "'how you left your father and mother and your homeland "'and came to live with a people you did not know before. "'May the Lord repay you for what you've done.'" May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You've given me comfort and spoken kindly to me, your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servant girls. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an effort. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, That man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers.
0: Thanks, Claire. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this book. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for what you've already been saying this morning. And we pray, dear Lord, that your Holy Spirit may come and speak to us deep into our lives for your glory. Amen. (laughs) Well, back in chapter one, before Claire started reading, Ruth had said more than where you go, I go. She'd also said to her Jewish mother in law, Your God will be my God. So although she was from Moab, she decided not to follow her own country's gods, but the Lord of the God of Israel. Why was that? I suspect it was because <clears throat> the qualities of, of, uh, and values of what she saw in her hub- husband's family really impressed her. The way they were, the way they worshipped, the things they believed in, the values they held. Has it ever happened to you? Have you looked at a, a friend or even a family and watched your, and said to yourself, the way they do that is really good. I wonder where they got that from. I'd like to do that, or I'd like to be that, Or I'd like to have that in our family too. I found that a lot, personally, both before, uh, soon before and soon after getting married. Other Christians are great to learn from. You found that? How to do things well in a Jesus-centered way. And I've learned so much through the example and attitudes of, of other people. I remember my dad, on his 80th birthday, suddenly announced that he wanted to become a Christian. But well, when we eventually got over the shock and asked him what had prompted him in his decision, his answer really surprised us. Do you know what he said? He said, because of the children. He meant our children, his grandchildren. And he'd obviously been watching them and wanting a faith of his own. And I think often we have no idea of how much the Lord does and can speak to those around us through how we are and how we react in a whole host of situations as we follow the Lord day by day. Lord, make me a person in whom others see you and your love, and may my life reflect your love and your truth. And I reckon that Ruth had been watching for some time, and finally she decided that faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob made very good sense, both personally, socially, and spiritually. So she took a step. Maybe you're at the point where you're watching Christians and Christianity. You too can take that step. Just ask a friend or somebody else here this morning, and they'll help you. So here's Ruth, committed to her mum-in-law and her faith. She's a foreigner from Moab in another country, and as the author author keeps reminding us uh, throughout this short book. We'll see throughout the book how much... God loves foreigners. And it's no different today. He always has. You'll see in verse 6, if you look in the the text there, that Ruth asks the locals if she can go out to the fields and do some gleaning as it happens to be harvest time. What on earth is gleaning, you say? It's not a word we use today, is it? Well, gleaning is an act of collecting leftover crops from farmers' fields after they've been commercially harvested or on fields where it's not economically profitable to harvest. And actually, some ancient cultures promoted gleaning as an early form of a welfare system. Well, I said that there was no social security, but actually God had put some in place for his people. He said this in Leviticus 19, When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap to the very edge of your field, Or gather the gleanings of your harvest, leave them for the poor and the alien, the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So, what the Lord organized among his people was that the leftovers didn't go to waste, but they were purposely left there for those who didn't have enough to eat and for foreigners who didn't have any means of support. Isn't that good? They could go to the edges of any field, pick up the spare bits of grain that were left over or dropped by the farm workers. What a great system for those struggling at the bottom of the pile. It's a kind of safety net for those who've fallen on hard times. It also helps ensure that nothing goes to waste. So notice again how the Lord cares for and makes special provision for people who don't have enough and for foreigners. That's why this church sees our compassion ministry as so important, because it reflects the very heart of God. He really really cares about people who can do with some help just to live the next day. Do you know what? I think that the one modern equivalent of gleaning is uh, church food banks. They make sure that what is left over It doesn't go to waste, but is able to be given to those who don't have enough to live on. Which is exactly why the Lord invented gleaning. Did you know that the French have made it a law that supermarkets have to give away their excess food rather than dump it? And there's some pressure on the UK to follow suit. So here is Ruth, a single girl and a foreigner with no visible means of support, Uh, using the Lord's social security system by picking up some grain at the edges of the fields at harvest time. Have a look at verse 4. Enter Boaz, the owner of the field and the boss of the business. But look at his greeting in verse 4. The Lord be with you, he says as he arrives on the scene. Boaz was obviously a farmer, with the Lord right at the heart of his life, but not just his life, his business as well. Now, I know another farmer like that here this morning. He happened to come and sit next to me this morning. His name is David Kitto, and uh, who read the passage last, last week, who has Jesus not just at the center of his life, but all his life has had Jesus at the center of his work as well. Now, I'm not sure that I'm suggesting that each of us goes into work tomorrow morning saying to everyone around us, the Lord be with you, the Lord be with you, the Lord be with you. They might just think that you were an Anglican gone mad. Uh, But I am saying that it's so important that we realize who we are in Jesus and take him to our place of work and understand the amazing difference that we as Christians can make as we exercise the authority that God has given us in our sphere of work. If you want to know how to do that, there is this excellent book, it's quite recent, and it's just been written, uh, called Transformation by Ed Silvoso, who was here um, a few weeks ago. The strap line is, change the marketplace, and you change the world. In other words, if people have their lives changed by Jesus in the marketplace, that actually the world changes a lot quicker than if they have their lives changed by Jesus in the church, because they're out there already actually there are a number of us Christians from across the city in in Winchester who are going to go through a short course in the autumn, studying the principles and practice of this book, Transformations. Uh, So if you'd like to join us, uh, let me know and I'll, I'll fix that for you. So Boaz was open about his faith in his work situation. He took his faith into work every day. Do you do the same tomorrow? It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge. The Lord bless you in it. I wonder whether you noticed a little phrase in um, uh, verse 3. As it turned out, they're talking about Ruth here, as it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. I love that phrase, as it turned out, and I love the understatement of the Bible. It was her first morning. Ruth hadn't a clue what to do, she'd never met any of these people before, she'd no idea who owned what field. She didn't know who was to be trusted and who wasn't. So who on earth arranged for Ruth just to walk into that particular field, the one, arranged, uh, the one owned by, by Boaz? The Lord, of course. And her life is clearly given over to God, and now he's at work in it and through it. There's a lovely verse in Proverbs which says, A man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Or a person's heart plans their way, but the Lord directs their steps. And what is happening here is that God is organising a divine encounter. God is getting Ruth in the right place at the right time. I love it. Do you realise that this divine encounter meant that Ruth, by some people's reckoning of just a nobody from Moab, ends up being mentioned in Jesus' family tree? Check it out in Matthew chapter one, verse five. You'll see it there. Just because the Lord directed her steps into a particular field on that day and everything that followed from that, which you'll hear further down the series, isn't that amazing? It's quite likely that if she hadn't been in that field that morning, she wouldn't have been an ancestor of Jesus. I want to. Do you ever pray for divine encounters? Who's had one in the last month or so? Yeah. Quite a few people. That's that's great. A meeting or happening or apparent coincidence that in fact turned out to be engineered by God. Something that wasn't and couldn't have been organized by people. I love them. They show the Lord's kindness and activity in and through our lives. Not many weeks ago we were walking in the Mitchell Dever Bluebell Woods. Do you ever do that? I'm sure you do. And we were just coming back. And uh, as you were, there was a group of people coming towards us. And as they did, I noticed that I, I knew one of the faces. And actually it was a minister from Basingstoke who um, uh, we knew quite well. And uh, I knew that that was a divine, divine encounter because actually what happened was that we were uh, talking to them. We were able to tell them about um, uh, Ed Silvoso coming and uh, he just organized a group of ministers from Basingstoke and there they came. But, you know, afterwards I thought about it, and actually two minutes either way, and we would have missed each other. You know, if anybody ever asked me if I'd like a job in heaven, do you know the department I would um, ask for? (laughs) It's the divine encounter department. (laughs) Because the timings are so amazing. That minister got lost getting to that bluebell wood. They'd never been there before. It was his first time, and he got lost on the way. But the Lord had the timing. How, how did the department organize that? <laughs> Hang on, Brian. We have to, wait a minute. He's not, he's not there yet. He's getting lost. He's going around the wrong road. Oh, I love it. We had one in the Winchester Tip uh, some little time ago. Just got out of the car, saw a person there that we hadn't seen for years and years, and, um, and we knew that God had organised that. She doesn't even live in Winchester. It was a divine encounter. I love God's timing. And these days we often pray for divine encounters, for the Lord to put us in the right place at the right time with the right people. Ask God for some. You'll find that the Lord's a work behind apparently insignificant events. So then, what about Boaz. Well, I can imagine that when Ruth got home that evening after her first day, she probably, uh, Naomi probably said to her, how's your day been, as one does? And Ruth said, amazing, this really kind man Boaz, he was so good to me. Funny you should mention him, says Naomi, he's a relative of ours. And you can see what Naomi says about him in verse 20. The Lord bless him, she said. He's not stopped showing kindness to the living and the dead. Here was a busy man, a farmer with lots of people working for him, but he's still taking time to show kindness to ordinary people, especially those in some kind of need or left penniless through bereavement. Then look what Naomi goes on to say at the end of verse 20. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. What does that mean? The expression actually only comes in the book of Ruth. Um, It's a very short book. The root word, Hebrew word, goel or ga'al, actually translates as kinsman or redeemer or relative or avenger. So what's a kinsman redeemer? The answer is a male relative who, according to Old Testament laws, had the privilege or responsibility to act for a relative who was in trouble danger, or in need of vindication. What a great idea this is. If something goes wrong in a family, well, I'm sure it wouldn't happen in yours, but, you know, in other families, something goes wrong, or an injustice is done to somebody, or there's a property dispute, or maybe even a devastating bereavement, then there's a male member of the wider family who can be called upon, although not forced to, called upon to take the matter in hand and be empowered to help in whatever way he can. Sometimes they could even take on a woman who had been bereaved and take them as their wife, if that was right. Boaz was a member of Naomi's wider family, so could he possibly be the one to help Naomi after the loss of her three men, her husband and her two sons? We'll hear later in the series how it all works out. But for now, just see how Jesus fulfills this beautiful idea for each one of us. According to um, Hebrews verse 2, there's a real sense in which Jesus is part of our family. The writer writes, both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. And in Hebrews 4, it says, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So said, you see that Jesus is our relative. He's part of the human family. He became part of the human family uh, as he was born in Bethlehem, same place. He's also our redeemer, as you well know, through his sacrificial death on the cross. In Jesus, we have redemption, Paul says, through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. He's truly able to help us and rescue us in every single one of our bad situations and bring us back into the place of being who He actually originally intended us for, to be. So, do you see in this book, written about 3,000 years ago, that's actually prefiguring the work of Jesus and His redeeming work for us 2,000 years ago, which is actually completely relevant for us today, 2016. What's more, it's really important that you see that it's about ordinary, very ordinary people like you and me. You could call it, David probably would, an everyday story of country folk. <laughs> but actually, it was made extraordinary because of the presence and activity of God. The Lord saw this young foreign woman who had nothing, prematurely de- and deprived of her husband, yet with a heart for the God of Israel. And as you will see in the next two weeks, thrilling installments, God turned everything round for her. Brothers and sisters, I just want to encourage you, he's ready to do the same for you and for me. Whoever you are, however ordinary you feel yourself to be, however little you feel yourself to have in any form, he's fully committed to your welfare here on earth. And a glorious future with him in eternity. So dare to believe it. He's your kinsman redeemer. So talk to him about your situation today. Because he really cares. He really cares. Let's just be quiet. And do that together. Just come to your father. Father who sent the kinsman redeemer for us. And tell him all about your situation as if you didn't know. And ask him to help us. Lord, you're amazing. You're so kind. Thank you that there's nothing that you don't see in our lives and care about. We thank you for showing us way back in the Old Testament through this book the depth of your kindness, even though we have nothing, even though we don't belong you still see us and you still love us and you've redeemed us. You've become our relative and you can sort things through. So we entrust you, Lord, with our situation this morning and we ask that you would come and make us the people that you always intended us to be, to show your glory in this world. Thank you, Father. Amen.